You're listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, bud, excuse me. Since you're going in, do you mind holding the door open for me? I got a delivery upstairs and I can't grab the door with this big empty box in my hand. Oh, yeah, sure thing, boss. I got you. Thanks, man. Hey, nice tan, by the way. Looking good. Tag's probably been working hard on it. Ah, there you go. Hey, Tony, you're late. 501. My bad, Rico. I know you need to know my exact whereabouts at all times since you are my bodyguard, but come on, man. One minute, just relax. I'm safe. I just got caught up for a second. I had to help somebody out real quick. <laughs> Why are you smelling like trash? Man, forget you. Hey, Tony. <laughs> hey, Chris, what's up, man? Crazy shift so far, and I just got here. Dude, well, I'll try to shift that into a positive direction. Listen, I just saw this flash drive out on the street on my way in, and it says property of U.S. government on it. Plug this piece into your PC real quick, and let's check it out. I heard this is the new way of them giving out the stimulus check. So you know what that means. Free money. Cool. Let me plug it into my point of sale system so I can see what it's all about. Maybe I can just transfer it. Wait, what? You've been hit with simulated ransomware. You fools testing me. Come on, man. You fell for it again, bro. This is my man, Mike. You let him in without him knowing the barcode code of entry. I just hypothetically infected your POS system, and Rico over there was dumpster diving to get the latest intel on you. Sorry, Tony. As your bodyguard, I also must help educate you on how to guard your own PII and proper disposal of information. Damn, fellas. Well, you got me. Uh, lesson learned. Now I'm going to teach you suckers a lesson. It's how to make a drink. We call it hypnosa. It's simple. All you need is two ounces of hypnotic. Two ounces of champagne, you just pour it into a chilled champagne flute. That will put you in the zone right there. Sounds good, bro. I'm going to go catch up with a professional social engineer that just slid in the side door. Tony, I think you need to pay attention to this one. All right, all right, I'm on it. All right, fellas, I'll see you on next round. I'm here with Jenny Radcliffe, an expert social engineer and people hacker. She has spent a lifetime learning how to use the human element to gain access to buildings, data and information, and the things we would wish to keep private. She's traveled the world educating and entertaining audiences about social engineering and the art of human hacking. Jenny, thank you so much for stopping by Barcode. You know, thanks for having me on the show, Chris. It's lovely to be here. Well, first off, let's, uh, let's set the tone. Can you properly define for us what social engineering is? Yeah, I mean, I think most security audiences would know it's the manipulation of people uh, for data or access to uh, things that would be private for malicious purposes. So whether that's a premises or, or data and information or in the case of social engineers, it were kind of the zombies of InfoSec. It's, it's access to your brain, right? And your decisions. But I go further when I, when I define it and I say it's the act of weaponization of human, human characteristics, traits and errors. 
So my, my definition of social engineering is the act of weaponization of human characters and traits, because that's really what, what I do. Very interesting. So you're playing off the, I guess, the human mindset and, and natural reaction to things. Yeah, because I'm not a technical hacker. So for me, I am working with the brain between, you know, the computer between our ears, the wetware, right? The meat yep. bag. Uh, I hate that phrase. I read that the other day. Went, oh, but it's so true. And I'm only working with that. So I am weaponizing things like our automatic behavior, things like emotional responses, things like cognitive biases and turning those tendencies in a human, whether that be general or tailored to an individual, into the access vector to an organization that's a target. That sounds very, lots of big words there, but yeah, yeah. I use the brains. Yeah. So how did you originally get into it? Like what, what really, you know, developed this interest for you? Oh, so, I mean, I tell the story a lot and, and, and I suppose, I suppose it's, um, it, 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 it's, it's the fact was I had a family that did Airbex, right? So urban exploration. I had older male cousins who all hung out in gangs and they, and I, I tagged along with them for various reasons. Um, and they were getting in and out of sort of empty buildings, just like kids do. So that there's an empty house in the neighborhood. Let's go and have a look around. And then should we do that at night? And then before too long, we were sort of all picking targets. So, oh, should we go and look at that? You know, I mean, where I where I'm from in the UK, there were lots of empty buildings at the time I was growing up, and um, because there was a depression in the UK and there was lots of unemployment and things, and so we'd be getting into things like abandoned warehouses and hotels and things like that. And so I kind of tagged along with that and did some criminal or very near the that line criminal things when I was younger, as a kid, really, and not really making the distinction about what it was. But I studied psychology. I was always interested in people. And I had a knack of being able to look at someone and kind of profile quite easily sort of their characteristics, their, their psychology, that type of thing. And then I was quite, I had a good memory, so I was quite good at exams. So, so it kind of like, I, I sort of did a lot of uh, studying of the human condition and of psychology and the brain and human beings. And then I was also being taught how to be a burglar um, and kind of, a little bit about security and, 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 and how to evade it and how to sort of pick locks and things like that. So it all came together. I, and before too long, um, I was being paid to do it. And, and I did it on the side for many years while I had other jobs. And then, you know, bless the information security industry, because when this industry kind of got bigger, suddenly I realized it was quite sudden. Oh, this is called a pen test and you can be paid to do it. So, yeah, so in a nutshell. That's a super cool line of work to be in. Now, when you say you studied psychology and why people would think the way they do, was that something that you learned formally or was that a skill that you picked up on the side and then just naturally started to understand the ins and outs of someone's thought process? So, I mean, I, I was, like I say, I was good at exams and like my first, so I went to call what you guys are called college university and I did my first degree. My first degree was in English. So it was in English language and literature. So it wasn't, I, there wasn't any really time. And I did some, um, some courses as well in, in journalism and things at the same time, but I didn't study psychology formally. And then I, I did a master's degree, which is in business and strategy and still didn't study psychology, but I was always 
reading up on it and doing it and sort of doing work to degree level in it. So I was reading all the textbooks. I suppose I just didn't think that I needed to, to do a degree in it. I didn't have time. I'd sort of done the other one. I didn't have time. And then lastly, the were degrees that were kind of around deception and things in the UK that um, I could have done. But by then I didn't really need another master's degree and it wouldn't have really done me any, any good. So, so early days, I think read things like anthropology books or books about, um, like I said, just psychology textbooks mm-hmm. and pick the things that was of interest. So social psychology, cognitive psychology. And then obviously when the internet came on board, I started to like read more. And I read about negotiation very widely. Internet sort of gradually comes online. I start to see that oh, there's, you know, there's a world out there of people who, who are actually experts in this, mostly from the States. And so I started to do courses and, and things in their work um, in things like lie detection and, and, and nonverbal signals and interrogation techniques. And then through work, when I finally started to get jobs as a consultant at first of all and, and in security, I'd meet people who give me stuff to read and teach me stuff and went on some courses as well. So I guess I'm a lifelong learner. I didn't do formal certifications or degrees in psychology but I'd read to that level and, and kind of teach at that level as well. So I teach at lots of universities about these higher level people skills and nowadays about, about social engineering, the human element as well. So it wasn't formal, but um, one day I'll, one day maybe I'll do something formal, but I don't, it's like insecurity though. I don't see that the certificates hold as much value anymore. I think people value knowledge and, and what we do. And I still think that, if you ask me about it, I know you can tell I know what I'm talking about. And I suppose that was really, it was enough for me um, to get on with the job. Yeah. It's a special skill for sure. And it's absolutely needed even in the wake of COVID. And ultimately the need for on-sites will rise again. And, you know, human interaction will need to resume at, at one point. So I've said this before, you know, I really enjoy watching illusionists and magicians perform and the really good ones make it look seamless by making the audience see what they want them to see. So I imagine social engineering is similar in the sense that you want them to believe what you envision them to believe. Is that right? Yes. So what you're trying to do all the time, you're going to take them on a journey and it's your journey. So we want them at our pace. I always talk about it a little bit like conducting an orchestra. So we want to raise emotional. And this is true whether this is online, by the way, or over the phone or whether it's in person. We want to uh, take them on a journey. Um, and we want to make sure that the emotion is high when we need it to be high, because that's when we want logic to be low um, for them to make certain decisions. And we're going to make it easy for them to make the decision that we want them to make. So, for example, if you think of a phishing email that quotes something like a, a parking ticket, a, you know, a speeding ticket, we introduce that element of fear and a little bit of cognitive dissonance. So a little bit of like, is this apply? I don't think I've done that, but it's plausible. If we've taken some open source intelligence information and we've got a few details right, so maybe the car, the approximate area, what that'll do is that'll just slightly raise the emotional temperature in that person's brain. And like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe this is a thing. I need to check it out. And it's the cognitive dissonance. It's that doubt. Maybe this is a thing that, that, that a social engineer is really banking on. Because then 
um, would say, but if you click on this link, you know, if you open the attachment, you can find out more. That's the root out of that dissonance. That's like the get out of jail free. That The human brain doesn't really like indecision. It doesn't like really not understanding what the path's going to be. It's uncertainty. And so we give them a path out of uncertainty. And of course, that's not necessarily in their interest to do that. For me, it would be just for monitoring purposes and education. But obviously, if it's a malicious individual, a bad actor, then it's for other reasons. So we'd, be, we'd always be looking to control the information environment of a target and to bring them along at our pace and, and conduct them like that orchestra. So we want you emotional now. Now you can be calmer. Now we're going to rush you. Now we're going to slow you down. And that's a, a set of skills required to do that well. Um, isn't what people often think social engineering is because sometimes, you know, people think it's a cheeky smile, uh, getting a discounted or free pizza or tailgating in. And whilst that might still come under the broad definition of social engineering, it's not elegant and it's not uh, thought out. And I would try anyway. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'll get a free pizza if I ever can, because who wouldn't, but I try and, and we try and make that a little bit more planned and a little bit more, a complex uh, a skill. Understood. And I'm so glad that you pointed that out because I was just interviewing um, a gentleman by the name of Nate O'Reilly and we were talking about decision fatigue and that most people gravitate toward the decisions that are made for them. And it sounds like you're validating that. Yeah. I mean, humans just really, we just want a quiet life in some ways. We like to know broadly and I'm generalizing, but broadly we like to know roughly what's happening next. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really like as, as a species to, to, to that level of uncertainty. It, it, it unnerves people as a whole. For social engineers, you don't need everyone to go along with it. You just need someone, yeah. the right person at the right time to do the thing that you need them to do because then that's your accessing. So, yeah, so it's always you, you get them to play to your beat, ideally. Now, what would you say are the specific skill sets that are needed to, to master social engineering? Uh, is it the understanding of psychology? Is it understanding how the mind works? Is it personality, being a good communicator, or what am I missing there? This is this is a question I, I'm sometimes asking, and what I'd say is, the things that make good social engineers, you need to really be interested in people, right? You need to be interested. You need to believe that everyone's got a story, and be prepared to go deeper behind the person in front of you than than you might imagine because what we're really looking for is we call pursuit and avoidance really trying to pinpoint what are the things people are drawn to and what are the things that repel people or move people away because then to really understand that individual um i, I mean i really it comes more from the con artist side of things but to really understand that person to con someone you really should know them quite well you need to know what what button to push and exactly what will work for that person so the first thing is really to understand and really want to work with people and then you need discipline um, because certainly if you're going to do this in a security, you know, in a professional capacity, you need discipline because it's kind of like when you do OSINT or you do, or you do intelligence gathering online, you can spend weeks, months in some cases gathering a lot of information that you then have to decide what to discard and what to run with. And trouble is, is that so, you know, when you investigate a company or an individual, a group of individuals, there's lots of juicy things and you kind of want to use those things. But the real skill is, is discarding what is not to be used and focusing on, on one strategy that you're going to use. But then 
you have to have tactical adaptability. So on the job, on the phone, on the email conversation or social media conversation, and especially face-to-face in a physical infiltration, what you have to be able to do is tactically adapt. That means the discipline not to insert yourself in the story and to discard anything you don't need, but then run with events. And to do all of those things, you need to have tenacity enough to have done your research properly. So what I'd say is to do the job at a higher level, you need the patience to acquire those skills. So due diligence, you know, big amounts of research. Um, and I've given lots of interviews, you know, given stories when things have gone wrong. And it's always because I have not taken the time to really, you know, put those safety checks in place and do all that research. So you need the discipline. It's not about you. It's about the client. It's about the story that you weave in. You need the tenacity to really do your research properly. Um, And also you need to know what else to adapt tactically. Now, everything else, we just use what people are good at. So if someone's great with people, then that's part of the pretext. That's part of what we use. If someone's not so great with people, prefers to be on their own, well, maybe that's the, the persona that we build around the con. Uh, my con is not your con. It's someone else's con, right? So if you're going to go in and do that, you're going to use your own narrative. But those core things are very important. There are just no shortcuts to doing it well, like like with anything, I guess. You mentioned OSINT, open source intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? Uh, I'm curious to know what are some of the other recon steps that, that you would use prior to an engagement? And, and obviously with open source, you have, you know, social media obviously plays a big part in understanding, you know, how one thinks or what one's interested in. Uh, But when you have a specific target and scope, what other resources equip you with the knowledge that's needed to help get into their mind? And, you know, I I guess I'd follow that up with, is it the same path of real attacker would take? Yeah. I mean, we're trying to replicate that as far as it's safe anyway. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm really, demonstrate the art of the possible and, and clients can be very alarmed. I have a lot of sort of government clients and, and, and things and it, even for them, it can be quite alarming when we say, so, so for example, uh, we were talking about getting a pass and we, you know, and could we get in with this pass and could we spoof one and could, you know, can the tech guys kind of get around the, um, the entry system and the biotech systems and things like that. And assuming that none of that was possible, the, the client said to me, well, well, how would you get in? And I said, well, we, we take it. I mean, we take the pass. Well, what do you mean we take the pass? Well, let's imagine I'm really a bad person. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to either steal it or I'm going to hold that person and, and take the pass from them. I mean, you have to understand that as far as someone can go. So we, so we replicate the criminal side of it, I think, as far as we can. And we, 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 we've created sort of dummy situations to show what, what that might look like. Obviously, with nobody injured or hurt or, or even perturbed, but that's what we would do. Now, in terms of how we gather it, um, on a target, particularly a corporate target, I see it as a funnel of information. And I, what I'm looking for is to narrow down everything I can find out about the target organization and then about individual teams and then about groups within the team, sources of power within the business, and then narrowing it, narrowing it to individuals and so on and so on and so on until I've got my actual one person that we're going to go for or, or small group of people, six people maybe. And you're right, we use a lot of, I mean, it was amazing to me when the internet really, when social media, not so much the internet, but social media really took off because in the past and what we still do, apart from online research on people and companies and everything, 
is we used to have to go and sit do proper surveillance on the site. So park around there or hang about the site, different times of the day and night, different times of the week, and really feel the way that building is and the, the way that target is, the rhythms of life, um, you know, the patterns of life of the people in that building, the shortcuts people take, the way people get around security themselves and just watch all of that. Um, and I do that and I do a lot of phone work back in the day. So, you know, phoning up and trying to find out is somebody, you know, are they angry on the phone uh, or are they chatty on the phone? When's a good time? You know, it's 10 to 5 on a Friday evening. Is that a good time to kind of try and get someone to hurry and do something before they leave for work or are they going to leave it till the, till the following Monday? So phone work, physical surveillance all plays a part of it, even to the point where we'd hang out in kind of bars and cafes and things. So on a Friday night, take an office back, pre-COVID and just draw a kind of a a little circle where are the nearest bars in whatever you know in the UK it'd be very small radius but probably a little bit bigger in the state where's all the bars uh, where do people go for their beers end of a bad week go and chat to their their work friends have just one drink maybe or, or something or a coffee in, at, at lunchtime and like, we'd hang out and listen to the conversations there sometimes with uh, equipment but really now we almost don't have to do it almost at all. I still do do it. I still go and have a physical look at things before I break in because you need to see what you're up against physically, what you're up against. But the 70 to 80% of it now can be done online and over the phone. So that's, and so that's your tip, you know, if people say, well, what's the tip? Well, watch what you put online because the more information I can, I can get. And that includes things in the background and little details. The more information I can get, the easier it is for me to, to get past you. And it's not me you should worry about, by the way. I'm nice. I just know how to do it. It's, it's yeah, you're genius. helping equip these organizations with what they need to do. Yeah. Um, so I sleep like a baby. There you go. I gave a talk, uh, online talk, not, not long ago. And, and I said, you know, why would um, putting your, you know, your daily jogging route, your running route, why would that be dangerous? And, you know, an audience of people are like, um, not sure. And I'm like, because I because I know where you are. And to us in the business, it's like, it's a no brainer. It's like, because the bad guys know where you are. You know? But I think to a lot of people, they just kind of go, that sounds a little bit hysterical, a little bit kind of um, catastrophizing it, you know, and making it more serious than it is. And I always say, well, I'd rather err on the side of caution. I'm a security professional. You know, hired me to make the tea. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you have been involved in some very intense situations while trying to gain access to these highly secured areas. So can you talk maybe about one of the, the scariest encounters that you've been faced with, or maybe one that, that just made you the most nervous? I mean, yeah, I just, I mean, I've spoken about, there's a couple of things. There's, there's been times when there's been security people have known that I was there and a couple of times I've done jobs where in hindsight, it wasn't really an official job. Um, and, and so I've got contacts that give me where to do that. Sometimes they're probably under the radar for the authorities or for, or for, for certain clients. And so there's been a couple of times that I've done that, but to avoid repetition, like I'll tell you a couple of things, the jobs that make me most kind of nervous or where I'm most perturbed that are the out and out terrifying, like there's somebody with a gun comes to get me or whatever. Usually when you're in a huge building, at night, there's no one else in the building. 
uh, or there shouldn't be anyone else in the building. And you'll always hear the noise, right? Because because you're scared because it's obviously quite a high tense situation. You've got a lot of adrenaline. And I was in one, there was a, a place, it was an art gallery. It was sort of like an art, it was like, um, it's not really an art gallery. It was an art gallery, but it was a place where they also made art at the same time. So it was displayed, but the artists were still kind of working there during the day and sculpting things and pottery and all the rest of it. <laughs> and I had to go in and do it. And, I, and the, the route in was quite easy. It was through a little flat and then there was a door, a fire door, which was always obviously because the fire door led into the, to the sort of the creative space, I suppose you'd call it. But it was enormous. I mean, it was just the most huge old warehouse type of place. It was massive. And those big places, if you're the only moving object in there at night, there's something about it that's very eerie. It's a place where there should be people, but there isn't people. Um, and I remember walking around and a couple of things, sort of a couple of things I had to do and I was doing them. And then I heard a noise. And it was definitely footsteps, but there's no one else there. And and it's probably just the wind or in my head, but now I'm nervous and I'm running around. And there's lots of sort of jobs like that where, and I'm fine and I got out and I'll write it all up one day, but it's things like that, that more so than being chased by security guards and things, because that's a hazard of the job. But it's times like that when you think there should be nothing wrong with this, but why is this so eerie? Why is it so spooky? <laughs> why am I so freaked out when I've done this my whole life? I mean, even from when I was really young, always in buildings and places I shouldn't have been. I mean, when I was really young, we got into a museum in my hometown and decided that we were going to try and sleep there. You know, stay, well, not sleep there, but stay there overnight. Yeah. And it was easy back in the day. There wasn't security, there wasn't a, there was security guards, but they were always asleep, reading the newspaper and falling asleep. And there was no cameras or anything. And a museum in my hometown. So the first floor we didn't want to do because that was where the guards offices were and everything. But the second floor was insects and uh, stuffed animals and things you know, like bad taxidermy. If you see that bad taxidermy, it's like really yeah, yeah. badly stuffed animals and, and, and sort of dinosaur skulls. And that was kind of quite spooky. The aquarium, all the lights were off, just the, just neon lights behind the fish tanks. That was quite spooky. So we didn't like that. So go to the next floor. And the next floor was Egyptian mummies and stuff and sarcophagus. And that was quite, that was terrifying. So like it was the next one, the next one. We ended up on the top floor, which is a planetarium and space uh, memorabilia. And ended up there because that was the least terrifying place that you could possibly be in that whole building, you know, and remember thinking, we didn't think this through. It seems like a cool place to spend the night, but actually it's, it's terrifying. And then years later, I saw the film Night at the Museum and it made me laugh because I thought that's what we thought would, like, in a way, that was exactly what we thought would happen. So it, it's, it's, a, it's what you think will bother you sometimes or might bother someone who hasn't done it for a long time. It tends not to be the things that bother me. Things that bother me are small noises or little unexpected things that shouldn't be there, something that's out of place. I should be the only person moving in those buildings at night if I'm doing a proper breaking and entering. And if someone else is moving and it's not the security guard, that's very, that's a very eerie, strange, strange feeling, I suppose. I'd also have a big problem with guard dogs. People oh, yeah. set guard dogs on, on us, you know, when we were running away mostly or trying to get out. And I had a problem with it for years until a friend of mine who was former special forces in the military told me three tricks if a guard dog's chasing you. 
And I cannot say all, all of what they are, but, you know, dog biscuits works very well. So I have a pocket <laughs> okay. full of those, but you should know that from your surveillance. And then there's a couple of other things as well, which I'm not going to say because it'll help people burglarize. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I really am not a fan of dog, guard dogs, really. I like dogs, but not guard dogs. Because so. guard dogs, uh, you, you can't really talk your way out of a situation with them. Not so much. Not so much. <laughs> yeah. So I, it sounds like that experience maybe helped you prepare mentally for what you ended up ultimately doing. Don't let me help. I mean, I've always done it. And it's not like ever. It's not like breaking into any building and being unauthorized access anywhere is ever anything other than a little bit. Yeah. You know, high, high temperature. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, if you do it for a long time, it's kind of like anything you get less spooked by it. But yeah, it did all of those experiences as a, as a kid and as a teenager prepared me to do the job I do now. So. Very cool. So you mentioned training courses. How would you advise someone that may be listening to this right now and are intrigued by your profession learn more about tactical training or pursuing a career in social engineering? So, um, I mean, we, I need, I have a curriculum written out, which we need to kind of productize properly so that people can buy in. I mean, it, we didn't, I didn't advertise it too widely in the past because I've got to be very careful who I teach this to. There are some social engineering kind of courses and a few things out there, but they tend to focus on, you know, I see, I see courses about like, they would teach you a little bit about vision and books as well, you know, a little bit about vision, maybe lots of technical training, but, but the sort of stuff that I've taught in the past to very small numbers of people, to, to people on my crew and, 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 and that I've worked with um, going back would be things like sort of interrogation techniques and, and psychology. There is, a, a, there is some room for body language and nonverbal training, but not much, you know, it's like I've, I've trained to, to a large extent that into expert level. And I use it a little bit because it's good to know what people are thinking and feeling, but, but it's not the whole of it. So lots of, of stuff like that. So, so what I would say until it's available on my website, which you can, if you follow me, you'll see it soon enough. Um, hopefully before the end of the year, what I'd say is look at books about people and about psychology and about things like architecture. So I, I looked at a lot of books about urban exploration and about buildings, because when you think about physical, I mean, it depends what you mean. If it's physical infiltrations, you need to know a little bit about buildings. You need to know about, a bit about the way buildings work, the way even cities work to a certain extent. Um, you've got to be part of the rhythm of not just a building, but of an area to really understand, you sort of feel it. It, it. It's a weird thing. You sort of feel what an assignment might be like. When I do the surveillance, sometimes I'll sit opposite a, a target and I'll watch it and I kind of really imagine what it'd be like to, to, to work there and to be there. And I'll even do a couple of dummy runs before I'll maybe go and collect things as well to feel that as well. So it's those types of things to really find out knowing people really well, knowing the that the, the, your tools, if you like, the building, the target buildings, the target sites is your tool. That's, that's part of your kit is knowing how to navigate those types of things. I, I mean, I'll give you an example because that sounds very esoteric what I'm saying. I've got a client that I do, um, I teach high level negotiation to, and they've got this great big building um, in London. And I'm not there to do anything to do with security, really. I'm there to teach them how to, uh, how to negotiate and how to sort of uh, influence people. 
but I got this feeling about the building that there was something I was missing. And I don't know, I was like, it, 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 there was just a strangeness to this particular area. It seemed to be cut off and there was nobody, I mean, without giving too much away, you can kind of see the rest of the building from lots of given points within it. So it was like the way it's, it's beautiful architecture. And so I, I, one night I sort of stay a bit late and I thought, I'm going to find out what that is because I'm terrible nosy. I've got to, I'm curious about these things. And so I started kind of looking around about about it and thinking there's definitely this area that's kind of like a, it's kind of like a no-go zone for people, but like it doesn't say that anyway. I looked at the plans, found the architectural plans. I've worked for these people for a long time, by the way. So found some architectural plans, couldn't see it, but could see that there was something on this floor. And there were tunnels. And what it was, was there were secret kind of corridors and tunnels in and around the building so that you could get, because it's so big, so that you could get from one part of the building to the other part of the building very, very quickly if you needed to in an emergency. Now, there's something that I've learned over the years to, to kind of just know when something's off, when something's hidden. And I suppose in some ways, social engineering really is uncovering what's hidden. And that's probably, you know, that's probably really two parts of, of five of what I do is just uncover what's hidden and then roll with it. I never went in them yet. Just want to say. Yeah. Because I wouldn't get any more training off that client if I did that, would I? It'd be very naughty. It's, I, I'm sure it's a huge, huge part. And, and I get what you're saying where you almost have to not psych yourself out, but psychologically place yourself there and, and just imagine that that's your day to day. Because you want your conversations to come off natural and, and not forced. And if, if you're unfamiliar with the situation, I can see how those conversations would come off scripted or even just, you know, citing something that you may have found online, but you really want that to flow naturally. So mm. what you're saying makes sense to me. And I'm sure, you know, a, a lot goes into that, but at the high level, place yourself like you're really there every day. And, yeah. and you know, this person that you're going to run in and talk to, even though you don't. But make yourself believe it. That's so dangerous with with open source intelligence, though. If you do research and so then you run into them, you go, "Hiya!" I go like, "Hi, Chris, you're right." And Chris goes, "Sorry, if we met." And you go, "No, but I've been watching you online for six weeks, so I know right. everything about you. You know, how's the dog? But you don't know me, right. and I've done that once or twice in assignments, and you know, because you just it's so familiar by then. I know it. I know it already before I go in. Then you're like, here, let's talk, hand them your business card and then walk yeah. away. Well, I leave my, I leave business cards in and around the building to show I've been there sometimes. And I also leave little tokens, I have little silver octopus and I leave those everywhere to show I've been there. Not too many, usually just one. Usually nice. under a member of the board who has doubted that I could get into their office. I usually leave it for them. <laughs> nice. Now, do you have a uh, get out of jail free card as well? Yeah, I mean, hopefully. I mean, I'm not, okay. back in the day, I didn't always, and I don't. I, I didn't always on some of the more sort of um, high secure assignments. But yeah, you're looking for that get out of jail free. Yeah. Now, for organizations that are struggling to train their employees on phishing attacks and other types of social engineering attacks, you know, what methods have you seen be successful and really resonate with end users? So, I mean. Look, it's a it's a massive industry, you know, the awareness space, and 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 it wouldn't be so big if 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 it all didn't work. So, I mean, some businesses they like a film, um, some businesses like a cartoon, 
I mean, some people learn through those things, but I, I think the most effective thing that I would say would be, and what people have always said to me about why it's effective if I speak to them, is, is, is stories, people remember stories and they like a story and they like particularly a story they can relate to. Um, so if there's humour in it, that's good. If there's emotion in that story, that's good. If there's a call to action in the story, that's good. And these are all the things that we use to catch someone's attention on a phishing email or however we approach. Are the same things that we can use to, to make someone aware. So I say there's a, four red flags. Your red flags are whether it's a phishing email, whether it's a call, whether it's on social media or in person. The four red flags people need to understand is do they talk about money? Do they rush you? Do you feel emotional? And do they ask you to do something? Open, a, you know, open an attachment, click on a link, give something to them. And once those things, once you've got those four flags kind of embedded in someone's mind, that's really what, what makes an effective phishing link. Once people remember them, those links are kind of less effective. But then when it comes to awareness training, it's the same thing, really. It's like we need to make it, they need to feel it. Right. So mm -hmm. statistics and numbers. I mean, I could, I could throw statistics out. I could say like 2019 University of Maryland said there's a hacker attack every 39 seconds. You know, tech data says 91% uh, efficient uh, of, uh, of cyber attacks are delivered through efficient email. You, you can throw those at people and, and, and they're like, they're interesting statistics, whatever, but if they're not juicy enough for someone to remember what someone will remember is. I was in a, I was in an art gallery and I heard footsteps and there was no one there. Yeah. That's yeah. what they'll remember. So what you need is you need stories, humanize the thing. People can feel that personally, imagine themselves there. Um, and so that they can go and tell someone, oh, there was this interest, this, did you know this? This is interesting. And then they might remember everything else. And I think that the problem with the awareness space a lot of the time and with the security industry in general, is there's a lot of people in that industry who don't have the authenticity to do it. They're trying to imagine what that would look like. And that's hard to do, I think, if you haven't experienced it. So I'd say authentic stories. And it comes back to what I said to you was, if you want to be good at awareness in the same way, if you want to be good at social engineering, you need to understand and care about those people. Because if you understand people, then you understand what stories uh, and what awareness training and just what training resonates with them. And they're going to go away and you're going to achieve your goal. If you don't really care, if you're in it for the money or you're in it for any reason other than protecting people, you might still make money. There's plenty that do, but it won't resonate the way we'd like it to. And that's really, that would be my best advice. And then it doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter if it's a poster, a sticker, a, a keynote or a video or whatever, as long as it's always remembered it's people that you're talking to. It's people that are biggest weakness in some ways, but they're also the biggest defence. But they've got to remember to be a defender. You know, that was a poem. Love it. To be a defender. Now, I've never said that, but that would go on a poster really well. Let's see who's the first couple. Let's, let's do it. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say, even if you have a poster with some cool artwork, right? Somebody's walking by, they get attracted to that artwork and maybe it's yeah. be a defender or or just a one-liner and those are the things that stay in your long-term memory versus the statistics. Like, yeah, I was going to say, cause like I would, like I wouldn't necessarily remember that, but someone else might, someone else might like to hear something. Someone else might like to watch something funny that might not resonate at all for another person might read articles. I think, I think it's an ongoing battle to just give a blended, uh, mm -hmm. blended content in regular, 
you know, amounts to, 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 um, to, to a, a staff of a company to try and keep that awareness going. hundred yeah. percent. So COVID aside, do you visit bars? Do you go to bars? I mean, absolutely. Okay. Yes. <laughs> what is the official term there? Is it bar or pub? So we have, to, well, it, it's a, the two different things. Okay. So a bar, we would probably generally call it a pub, but down from the north of the UK, which is kind of slightly different than being from the south. So London's in the south, I'm from the north, which is where Liverpool and Manchester are. Um, if anyone knows those histories in the States, you probably do. Um, a bar would be something that was a little bit more swanky, you know, so um, they'd have... Uh, you know, it'd be a bit, be a bit, it'd be very kind of modern. Perhaps the interior would be quite modern, and they might serve sort of gastro nice food. Um, the drinks would be a bit more expensive, and there'd be a kind of a little bit more of a sort of smarter, more formal crowd. That's what kind of maybe what we'd say wine bar certainly might be, but a bar, but a pub is generally a, a less formal atmosphere. It's usually people sitting down. There'll be food, but it'll be very much comfort food. Um, to pies and and we call them chips and not and they're not fries because they're thick chips, right? Ah, okay. So thick potatoes, um, fish and chips, that type of thing. So that might be a pub, and a pub would be definitely more sort of less pretentious. Although I'm not saying that I prefer like the, there's a place for both of these things. So bar might be somewhere you go, so still dressed after work, and you'd have sort of a cocktail or a perhaps a you know an artisan beer. Whereas a pub would be something where you'd have a pint. And where okay. like the my my local pub pre-COVID, if you went in and asked for a glass of um it's a joke in, in England, it's, it's said lots of people have said it, but if you asked for a pint of lager with lime, you know, you sometimes have some lime in it, mm-hmm. they'd say we don't do cocktails. <laughs> that would be more of a pub. Or when you'd say, I remember saying, um, what flavoured chips have you got? You know, bags of chips and nuts. What, what flavour of crisps have you got? And they'd say, well, you know, you've got the ones on the left or the ones on the right type of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, so it's much more kind of... Straightforward. Straightforward. Yeah, it's, it's kind of less pretentious, <laughs> I'd say. Yeah. Both of which have a place, though, for sure. Definitely. So I'm sure in either one, you have patrons that spend enough time there and they find themselves susceptible to social engineering attacks, especially with the more you're drinking and the later it gets into the evening. So, you know, what can a bar or an establishment like it do to help protect their patrons? That's such an interesting question. I've never been asked about social engineering in a bar or a pub. That's so interesting. I suppose what you see isn't so much, I think we have to be careful about what we label social engineering. You know, I mean, if you're talking about, I mean, in Liverpool when I was a kid or when I was younger, there were people who'd, um, there were girls who I knew who waited till there was a ship that came in. So Liverpool's a port. So as soon as a ship would come in and all the sailors would go and they go drinking in Liverpool for their, yeah, their weekend off, which they deserve to do. And they sort of like, the, the girls would sort of make sure they got some drinks bought for them and occasionally nick a wallet or two, I suppose. So, you know, you, you, you'd warn people like you would anywhere that if you've had a few drinks, your judgment's low. Mm-hmm. Don't be throwing your money around, uh, that type of thing. So suppose there'd be things like that. And I think these days, unfortunately, the other thing that I would always warn people about would be a sort of packet sniffing. So in other words, connect into the Wi-Fi's of bars and pubs and things. I know it's convenient, but it's very easy for even me. And I say I'm not a particularly technical hacker, but I can do things like that and I can, you know, I can intercept traffic 
because they probably aren't using um, VPNs and things and ways to stop that if people weren't aware. So I suppose there's that as well. And all those things tap into social engineering, as does someone suddenly being very interested in your job uh, and where you work and, and, and sort of the details. And anyone who's ever interested in the minutiae of your work, that should be a bit of a flag. Because what a social engineer is really trying to do is get the other person talking. The person in control and conversations a lot of the time is not the person talking, it's the person listening. And that's very true for social engineering. So if someone's, you know, if you're suddenly the most popular guy in the bar and there's pretty girls talking to you or good looking guys talking to you and and everybody's really interested and it's fascinating. Every aspect of your employment is really fascinating. And of course, we'll buy another drink. And, yeah, you know, buy another red one. Flag. <laughs> there should be a red flag anyway. Uh, but it could also be, I guess, it could also be social engineering. It's a great question. That's a great question. It's something that I see. You know, I, I think the businesses have control over some of that. Like you said, the Wi-Fi, you know, making sure that the infrastructure around is good. But, you know, it's, it's rare you see a bar stop serving drinks unless, you know, they're completely inebriated. But if they're to a point where they're, you know, leaking information at their own will, you know, that's sort of out of the scope of what a, uh, an establishment can really. What can you do? And that's alcohol, the great loosener, isn't it? The great lip loosener, everyone knows. <laughs> Exactly. Now you said you're out in the UK, so I'm, I'm curious, again, COVID aside, do you have any cool bars where you are? Or uh, I'm a really big fan of speakeasies and secret bars and things oh, like that. Oh, yeah. Do you have any around there that you could really, you know, give a shout out to or? Oh my God, about? definitely. Okay. So there are, t so Liverpool is a big party town. All right. Okay. Uh, we are always ready. You are very welcome to come and we are always ready to party, ready to sing and ready for a drink. And we have, a, there is a speakeasy in Liverpool and it is fab and it is called Berry and Rye and it's on Berry Street in Liverpool. Now, Liverpool has the oldest Chinese community in Europe, Chinese dia diaspora. And Berry Street is on the way into our Chinatown. And oh, it's so cool. So, it's secret, but it isn't, but it is, but it isn't. Um, do you walk down Berry Street in Liverpool and you'll see, uh, you can see the, oh, we've, oh, my city's beautiful, right? So if you get to the top and, and you're looking on the left, you walk up a street in Liverpool called Bell Street and at the top of the street, there's a church called St. Luke's. And people from my city call it the bombed out church. In the Second World War, Liverpool was bombed extensively by Germany because we were a dock city. And a bomb landed in the church and it exploded, but the church stayed standing. And so the outside of the church is secure and, you know, still intact, structurally secure. But um, it's completely uh, overgrown and it's a garden now. So you walk past the bombed out church and down Berry Street um, towards Chinatown and towards the, the river. And there's a black door. And what you have to do is you have to knock on the black door. And you knock on the black door and a great big guy will come out and say, what? And you have to say, is there space for two? And if there is space for two, a black curtain will pull to one side and it's a speakeasy. And it's the type of place where they do, they're online, so shows out to them. But I remember going in and saying, I'd like something rum-based, quite tall, maybe a bit creamy. And they'll go away and they'll do it and they'll do all your classics. And all the menus are in like books that with, with, with the middle cut out so that like if you were busted by the cops, you could close the book 
and no it just way. looked like it like an old place. So Berry and Ryan Liverpool's fabulous bar, um, and there's like a million others in Liverpool. If you if you're looking for a pub in the UK, Liverpool's a great city. And the other recommendation I give, which is not a speakeasy, but is a proper English pub that if you are, particularly my American friends that come over to London want to see, you need to go to near where I stay in London. So I stay in a place called Mayfair in London. And there's a place called Shepherd Market in Mayfair, uh, which is notorious for all sorts of reasons. Red light area at one stage and kind of still is a little bit and lots of things. But within the big metropolis of London and very near kind of like our Hard Rock Cafe in London and very near the Hilton in London and, and all these kind of really expensive places. You've got Shepherd Market, which is lots of little restaurants and tiny little uh, bars. And my favourite bar is a bar called uh, The Grapes or Ye Grapes, Y-E Grapes. And that is a proper kind of English pub, although it does serve excellent Thai food for some reason. It serves Thai food as well. But um, if you're from the US and you want an English pub, The Grapes is there. And that whole area of Shepherd Mark is just like a little square. And there's other pubs in there as well. So one's a pub and one's a speakeasy. But if you get to Liverpool, go to Berry and Rye for sure. It's amazing. Really good. Lots of fun. Nice. I'm booking my flight. I'm there. <laughs> we need to tag them so they sing. Oh yes, I will. For sure. I'm going to look them up and, and I'll tag them and I'll do my my recon and I will be there. I'll make sure I have the <laughs> correct password to, to get in. They're on Instagram, Barry and Ryan. They go live occasionally and then put it up there and it'll be one of the people doing drinks and things, cocktail. I'm always fascinated by somebody who makes a really good cocktail. And in fact, in the States... The best, I, I like an old fashioned, my favorite drink, seeing as we're talking drinks. Yeah. And the best old fashioned I ever had in the States was in the bar of the Pendry Hotel in San Diego. And I said, oh, I think I'll have, a, I'll have an old fashioned. And it, and it was perfect. It was too nice because it went down very quickly. Indeed. <laughs> Those are the dangerous ones. And they're very, it's very strong, right? So I have to be careful. So, so um, I just heard last call here. So do you have time for one more? Absolutely. All right. <laughs> Do we get a lock-in? Do you know a lock-in? No. So in the UK, we have a lock-in. So um, pre-COVID, of course, if you're in the pub, we have last orders are called, at, I think it's still 11 o'clock in, in, in the UK. And that's when the pubs are supposed to close legally. But if you were a regular and you wanted to drink for a bit longer, what they do is they close the curtains, turn some of the bigger lights off and lock the front door. And then you're in a lock-in. Then, then you can then you can leave, uh-huh. but you're there like it's not illegally, but kind of is a bit illegally. But then you're there as a regular. So if you get invited to a lock-in, it means that you're a regular, your family. Um, and again, one of the pubs that we used to drink in um, all the time, everyone else would go. So the non-regulars would go. The, the curtains would be drawn, the doors would be locked, and then the landlady, so the owner, would come down with sandwiches and chips. <laughs> <laughs> because everyone but they'd always be really salty she'd always make them really salty so that we'd all still keep buying drinks <laughs> yeah That's and turn so cool. all the lights off in the bathroom so you didn't spend too long in the bathroom either because they want you to keep drinking and it's so true that's what a pub's like that's an English pub no light in that's the bathroom awesome. and, and salty salty snacks <laughs> so I feel like you're a VIP here so I'm gonna oh, ask you, you one more question thank um, you if you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Well, you see, this is the plan. 
So the plan would be I would have a sort of hacker theme bar uh, and I have a specific place that's going to happen. And I've never thought too closely about what it'd be called, but given it's me, I think I probably have to call it the social. And you see, my drink would be the drink that I ordered after my most dangerous job, which is the one I kind of didn't tell you about because I've said it a lot and I told you other things. But my most dangerous job, um, I just about got away alive, really, uh, in Asia. And I got back to my hotel and I had twigs in my hair and muck on my face, you know, all dirt on my face and scratches and cuts. And my clothes were cut and my boot was hanging off. And I, I was a very expensive hotel. I was staying in there and I was in the hotel. It was about 3 a.m. And I walked straight into the bar area, which was very quiet. So obviously it's three o'clock in the morning. There was the bombs there. I, and I saw myself in the mirror and I said, I'd like, and I was, you can imagine, I've only just got away with this all. I'm still very shaken. And I said, make me something very alcoholic that a kid could drink. And he put some sugary thing in front of me that I just kind of downed. So I think it would be something alcoholic that a kid could drink. And I don't know what we call it, but maybe that full title would be the best one be like the tequila kool-aid or something that that sounds good <laughs> or maybe we call it nine lives because i definitely lost one of them that night that's a cliffhanger and we'll uh we'll stop there that'll be the next interview because i gotta hear how that that ended <laughs> we'll just need to continue this um but no thank you for sharing the stories that that you did share and i appreciate you coming on and, and spending your time with us and helping us understand what social engineering is and educating us on the possibilities of what a real attacker is capable of doing. Uh, you mentioned your website earlier. Could you just maybe tell us what your, your website is, what your online footprint is, and where our listeners can find you? Sure. So uh, the website is uh, humanfactorsecurity.co.uk. Um, but most people follow me either on LinkedIn, Jenny Radcliffe, or on Twitter, which I'm um, Jenny underscore Radcliffe. Um, but you can find me all over the place, the people hack, and I have a little avatar, little girl, like sort of little, little me holding a brain, little cartoon girl holding a brain. Um, and if you follow the blue brain, which is my tat, which you probably can't see it there, but my all my logos have got the the blue tattoo so the blue brain you'll find me very ironically cool. chris i'm very easy to find online <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh hopefully next time we'll get together it'll be at the social and we'll have a real drink together excellent excellent and you're very welcome at liverpool as well very and right tell them i sent you <laughs> uh, definitely will thank thanks again you take care take care thank you Barcode patrons. If you enjoyed this episode and want an easy way to support the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you're not on a Mac or iPhone, just visit the barcodepodcast.com slash reviews. I appreciate all the support. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.